the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black in Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome in. Getting a little bit of echo. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money investing, and more. Oh, my. So much we can talk about. Um, it's going to be an interesting day, to say the least. You're going to have to work with me on this one. We're getting some economic data that brings up questions. Uh, Wall Street dipping in the morning, even though we're near record highs. Wall Street edged lower at the open as investors hesitated to push the market higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average opened lower. Now, again, yesterday we opened lower and we went higher. It's day by day, eh. Um, I'm not all that into this conversation on what's moving the market on a day-by-day basis as importance to a long-term investor. I'm on it as let's learn how the game's played so we don't get freaked out. Twitter's got a big lockup issue. I often say that you never want to buy an IPO in its first year. And then the next thing out of my mouth is slightly shocking. I say you never want to buy an IPO in its first year. It's kind of like having standards. And, you know, your standards in dating. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to think that people with divorced parents end up marrying a, a spouse who had divorced parents. Because I, I think that, that kind of, they get how it works. People whose parents stayed together forever end up marrying people whose stayed, parents stayed together. Now, again, that's not always... That's maybe not the best example. Maybe the better example is um, when you turn 30, don't date 18-year-olds anymore. Um, date one generation below you, one generation above you. Anything above that or one 10-year period above you and one 10-year period behind you. Anything out of that, it starts to get kind of wacky. Okay, let me give you a little bit more on what I mean by this. Have standards like uh, if you're a, a college-educated person, probably don't date a 10th grade high school dropout. It's probably not going to work. You're not going to have that much in common. That's why that whole 10-year difference is important, because when you were growing up and Reagan was president, she was growing up and Clinton was president. And that's a pretty big 
difference. I know it's uh, okay. I'll drop it. But Twitter, I don't own shares of companies that are IPOs for a year, unless it's a really, really special occasion. And I think that the market undervalued that IPO. So that's rare. Or maybe if that IPO came out and then the market crashed or tanked, that might be the opportunity. So Twitter shares are falling back 10% today. Early trading after the expiration of a six-month lockup period. Early investors had restricted the sale of about 82% of the company's shares. Now a lot of insiders can cash out and buy a boat. A lot of insiders can cash out and buy a car. The money to them is the difference between 10 million and 8 million, meh, and they don't want to see it go to 6 million. It's not, as, it's not the same game that they're playing that you're playing. They worked for a company for a long time, put in a lot of sweat hours, some 20 hour days, some freakouts by management. So they're now cashing in on that sweat equity, so to speak. So this is putting pressure on the stock because Twitter last week reported sagging metrics. Sagging anything, probably not good. Put the word sagging in front of anything, it's probably not good. Sagging muscles, no. Sagging tookish, no. Sagging eyes, no. So sagging usage metrics, not good. Especially since there's a bigger company called Facebook that's still showing some growth metrics. So people like Jack Dorsey and Evan Williams, CEO Dick Costello, said in April that they don't plan to sell shares after the restrictions were lifted. We'll see. Um, putting your money where your mouth is, again, sometimes these guys are billionaires. So Twitter down 9% today. That's one of the bigger stories for sure. Um, the dollar is another story. And the yuan, we're talking currencies. And that's a little bit tougher to translate into good radio. Um, I don't want the average listener out there to go out and buy currencies. I don't own any currencies. My currency plays are few and far between. And it would be tied into the currency concept of like, well, the dollar's weaker, so that's going to help you recover. And that's simpler than it is a clear trade on a currency. So the fallback excuse right now is that the Ukraine concerns are weighing on sentiment, notwithstanding the fact that the euro is up, the German Bund is down, gold prices are soft. Ukraine's not the issue. Ukraine wasn't really the issue for the week start yesterday, but we kind of threw it out there. So European markets rallied late in the session, and that helped the U.S. markets rally. The main issue today is is basically strength. What's going to get us to that next level? Like when you run, I like doing distance running, and you know my best six miles, what forty minutes? What's going to get me to thirty-eight? It's going to get me to 39. I just, I can't break it. Um, I'm not fast. I'm pace. Um, it's, I'm not a body lifter, but let's say you can bench press 550. What's going to get you to 570 and you've been trying for years? Same thing's happening on the market right now. U.S. dollar fare isn't doing terribly well. The euro's up. The British pound is up. Uh, U.S. trade deficit narrowed to $40.4 billion in March, down from a reportedly revised $41.9 billion in February. The March figure was slightly better than the uh, consensus expectations for $40.6 billion. Blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of numbers. 
This, though, the bottom line is going to lead to some upward revisions for export components in the second estimate for first quarter GDP. So that first quarter GDP was pretty weak. It'll get a little bit better. So, um, I don't know. France told General Electric that its bid for Alstrom's energy unit was not good enough. AstraZeneca isn't being that receptive to Pfizer's buyout overtures. Merck has agreed to sell its consumer business to Bayer for $14.2 billion. So this is the, you know, the, the big picture, so to speak, of what's going on out there. Taking a look again at Twitter, and this is going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, how much does it break down and or not? The S&P 500 is down 7, the NASDAQ is down 17, the Dow is down 81. With Twitter, what you're looking for is some sort of level of support. Um, and is there any level of support? No. It IPO'd at too high of a price, $44. It's now at $34, so it's $10 below its IPO. So at some point in time, we'll start seeing some value here. Maybe when it gets to about $15 billion valuation, and that's that's risky. Um, it's risky because even though the, their business model will eventually be to the point where you do R&D, 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 no R&D, and it all hits the bottom line, um, they're probably going to be a division of another company unless they show in the next two, three years that they could really initiate some sort of interest from the average person out there. I use Twitter. I love it. I don't do a lot of tweets. I'm more of a Twitter reader than a Twitter uh, user. Um, on occasion, you know, if someone fascinating comes along, I'll tweet them a message. But Twitter's also plagued by, like, um, bogus accounts. There's a guy, uh, Chris Hardcore. No, Chris Hardwick, not Hardwick. He was from the Tactical Show. He was the game reviewer. And suddenly he appeared up as one of my followers. And there ain't no way he's following me kind of thing. So he was buying followers. He's trying to, hey, if I blast all these people, maybe they'll befriend me back and make me look even more important. I'm not into that game. Anyway, you can find me online, robblack.com. It's robblack.com. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. Welcome in. Rob Black here, Money. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more, trying to get you to retirement, or at least thinking about how much of a nest egg you're going to need to last from age 60 to 100. SP 500 is down 4 today, the Dow is down 58, the NASDAQ down 7. Let's bring in Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst, Briefing.com, regular guest, and a wonderful website for those of you wanting to accumulate market knowledge. How are you, Mr. O'Hare? I'm doing well, Rob. I hope you're doing fine, too. I'm doing okay. Um, it's kind of a weird time. Uh, markets aren't quite hitting record highs. They're getting close. They're not doing it. The earnings are a little weaker than expected, uh, but we kind of expected that because of the cold winter. Um, what's your take on the current pulse of the market? Confused. 
Uh, okay. I think that the, the market doesn't quite know what to make of things right now because it's getting contradictory inputs. Um, you know, you have uh, the st major stock averages, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you know, the Dow Jones Transportation Average, all sitting at or near all-time highs. At the same time, you have a treasury market that's uh, been rallying all year long and defying you know, pretty much all expectations that were set ahead of this year. And um, uh, and on top of that, you've got some weakness in the dollar, and those latter two inputs, the strength in treasuries and the weakness in the dollar, don't line up well with these arguments that the economy, the U.S. economy, is poised to hit escape velocity, uh, which in turn should invite higher interest rates. So some really um, challenging conditions here, and we think that that's what's contributing to this chop that we've been seeing where you're up one day and down the next or even down big in the morning and up in the afternoon. There's just no real continuity there in the trading action. Let's pretend that the economy continues to add jobs and inflation doesn't go out of control and the Fed starts finishes their buyback and they start to raise interest rates. How do you think the market's going to respond during that time of transition? Well, I mean, theoretically, it should do well. If uh, job growth is going to continue and you're not going to get, you know, inflation with that, uh, uh, you should see long-term rates, you know, hold pretty low. And uh, and if that's the case against the backdrop of improving economic activity, that would suggest things also bode well for earnings growth potential. And so uh, so that's the best of, you know, all worlds, really, for, for the stock market. The problem is that when you see – job growth pick up uh, or, you know, sharply and it's sustained, you should see higher wage growth, which uh, then can create some wage inflation uh, issues that then get translated into, you know, higher consumer prices along the way. So probably won't be so, you know, orderly, uh, notwithstanding, you know, what we saw in the April employment report where you had a big jump uh, in the establishment survey in terms of payrolls there. Uh, but no growth in, in hourly earnings, really. So, um, again, that going back to the earlier point, those were two contradictory inputs uh, that made it really difficult to kind of figure out what the heck the you know, April employment report was trying to tell people. Some of the economic data that I've been seeing presented at briefing.com include housing starts getting weaker. It also includes, um, you know, rea uh, recology, rheology today saying that, you know, they're not expecting to buy and sell as many houses this year as uh, they wanted. How important is the weakness that we're starting to see in some of the data points coming out of housing? Well, we think it's really important in terms of uh, sentiment value, certainly, right? Um, okay. You know, the, the residential investment component of GDP, because the base got so low, you know, as it continues to improve, it you know, it does help boost GDP growth, but it's not, you know, the be-all, end-all as it relates to uh, GDP growth uh, improving strongly. Um, you know, consumer spending and business investment would be the, you know, real two key inputs there, and uh, and so that's something to watch. But as it relates to the housing sector, um, obviously a lot of people are tied into that sector directly or indirectly, and uh, you want to see uh, stronger demand there, stronger household formation, uh, because that's you know uh, an, an encouraging uh, element as it relates to U.S. economic growth potential. Uh, but what we're seeing here is housing starts are down, uh, you know, 
about 6% year-over-year, uh, new home sales down close to 15% year-over-year, existing home sales down close to 8% year-over-year. And so the idea that a lot of the, the optimism for 2014 was predicated on this continued recovery in the housing market uh, has been called into question here, and it's raising concerns about just how fast the economic, uh, the economy here can recover because we're not seeing uh, that uh, same optimism being reflected in the actual data year to date. So it could uh, certainly hit on uh, sentiment if we continue to get that, uh, that this weak trends continuing. Give you a chance to highlight something that is all you. Anything that you're working on or anything that you're um, seeing in the markets that maybe CNBC or Bloomberg are not highlighting that should be highlighted? Uh, you know, uh, right now, Rob, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, not really. Um, okay. Early in the week tends to be a period for me where I do uh, some deep digging, if you will, into some idea generation for the column I write, the big picture uh, that I publish every Friday. Um, but, you know, what I'm keeping a close eye on, though, is exactly what we're talking about today is these these contradictory inputs and which one will ultimately be proven right. Is it going to be the Treasury market or is it going to be the stock market? Um, and uh, the jury is out. You know, I think we talked earlier, we need more economic data to support this recovery argument so that we can feel better about the earnings growth uh, story coming to fruition here. And if that's the case, then we'll feel good about the outlook we had coming into the year that the stock market can indeed post a modestly positive uh, total return here in 2014. So I'll be watching that and more near term be watching what uh, Fed Chair Yellen says at our joint uh, economic testimony, which begins tomorrow. With what we're seeing in the short term, how does that align with your midterm, long term thesis on the markets? Uh, if someone has 10, 20, 30 years left before they need the money, would you overweight anything? Would you underweight anything? Market neutral? What would you say to that person with a time horizon? Well, if they have a you know long time horizon, I guess that means they're they're younger, uh, so um, so they can afford to be you know more aggressive in terms of their you know allocations to equities uh, and within the growth sectors within the U.S. equity market. So like the technologies and you know energy, you know financials, those are <clears throat> and healthcare. I mean these are. These are, uh, you know, core areas that, you know, are going to ride out these ups and downs, obviously, but, you know, have decent growth prospects ahead of them based in part on the fact that, you know, uh, demographics, you know, have an aging population. Uh, that's certainly going to bode well for the healthcare sector and also financial services. Um, you know, energy is not ever going out of style, and so there will be ongoing demand there. Uh, and technology, of course, is is – always the the place that uh, we come back to as a you know as a growth area so um so if you've got you know 20 30 years you can still afford to be I think overweight the US market and overweight some of those uh, cyclical areas I talked about, but showing appreciation still for some of the income-generating potential that's provided in some of these more defensive-oriented areas like the consumer staples and the, uh, the utility sector, which you know have afforded uh, investors this year certainly a nice cushion as the market's been uh, pretty volatile. Speaking with Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst, Briefing.com. Briefing provides independent live market analysis, U.S. and international markets, and much, much, much more. One last question for you. Um, I say a lot of dumb things on radio to kind of teach some lessons. Like I say, have standards. Don't date someone 11 years younger than you. Um, Twitter 
I say don't buy IPOs in their first year. Let some of that lockup expiration happen. You have to have that standard with very few exceptions. Maybe if the market crashes during that year and you really, really want to own something, uh, maybe pick up a little bit of it. But what are your thoughts on Twitter at this time? Well, I think it's, you know, my thought is that uh, people are learning that momentum investing cuts both ways. It was a hot stock. It was a hot concept. Uh, it's, it continues to be a very popular business, uh, but that popular businesses don't always translate into great stocks uh, when they get ahead of those uh, underlying fundamentals. And that's what's uh, coming home to roost here for a lot of people who tried to buy that stock and chase the performance following the IPO. Uh, so you have to be careful about uh, investing in, in a business concept when the stock is so far ahead of what the company is actually delivering uh, or could possibly deliver in the you know next several years. Anything else you want to chime in on? We've got about a minute. Um, well, I think you know what we're seeing uh, develop here today is certainly some interesting move uh, within the currency markets. The U.S. dollar uh, certainly not doing all that great. We're seeing continued strength in the yen, which is something to watch out for given uh, a lot of the leverage that's tied up in so-called yen-based carry trades. And so if the yen continues to strengthen, uh, investors who have borrowed in low-yielding yen, it becomes more cost-prohibitive, more expensive for them to pay back those loans, and they could be forced into selling some of those positions So, uh, to pay back those loans. So that's one risk area that needs to be watched carefully here uh, and could provide some upset for the market if the yen continues to strengthen against the dollar. Thanks very much. Always making it very interesting and insightful. Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst, Briefing.com. Check out the website. Check it out. Um, I've been using it for, I think, 13 to 14 years now. Um, And I couldn't say, I could say, honestly, it's only gotten better. And it's worth every penny, depending on whether you go with a low-end subscription or a high-end subscription. Um, Top-notch data. Also, they have a Twitter handle, Briefing.com. It's not Briefing.com because... Twitter made that kind of messed up. Briefing come. My Twitter handle, Rob Black Show. My YouTube handle, Rob Black Show. You can find me on Facebook, Cron4, Rob Black. Office Depot raised its forecast for full-year adjusted earnings. It said it's going to close at least 400 stores in the United States over the next two years, sending the shares up. That's a lesson. Wall Street likes cuts of both stores as well as employees. It doesn't make sense, but in the short term, it's a way of making more money. Biggest cost of labor, biggest cost of doing business is labor. Twitter hits an all-time low today. Company that I like very much, but the company's valuation is very expensive. I own no shares of Twitter. Um, 
they're in pro- they're in trouble right now. They've got insider lockup happening at exactly the same time that they're showing a slowage in usage metrics. It's easy to grow from 1 to 2, 2 to 4, 4 to 8, 8 to 16, 16 to 32, but the laws of big numbers eventually catch up to you. It's not as if everyone in the world doesn't know what Twitter is. It's pretty well out there. So people who want to use it, they've known to sign up and or not. It's got a $19 billion market cap. It IPO'd at $44 a share, roughly, and it's now at 34 you could have sold out at 72.73 if you were super smart. It's now down 50%. Now keep in mind, momentum stocks are sexy on the way up. On the way down, a 10% correction on a momentum stock is not very much. 20% a little bit better. 30%, 40%, now we're talking. 50, 60% chance to buy from an all-time high rarely happens. In this case, it's going to tell you one of two things. There's some value here, and or there's a really big problem here. It's got a peg, to, peg ratio of 6. It's got a price-to-sales ratio of 27. It's got a price-to-book of 7. Uh, none of those numbers excite me. Maybe they would have excited me when I was 20, 25, 30, but not yet. They have a war chest of cash. So this is not like they need cash, they're hurting, they're struggling. Um, just, I guess that's the story, and I'll, I'll stick to that, and I'll say that's all we need to talk about. Financial stocks are lagging today. A stock market needs financial stocks to lead. I was listening to a radio show yesterday where the guy started, he's starting to copy me. He didn't quite get the numbers right. He was talking about financials hurting because of mortgages. But uh, you need financials to lead. Uh, we've got some evidence recently that small business loans are getting approved faster and faster. Um, and that should help our economy because when you have a check, like with a small business loan, one of the application questions, do you plan to at least hire, how many people do you plan to hire? Wow. So like they're not lending you the money so that you can sit on it like a golden egg. Uh, the yen strength is weighing on sentiment today. Uh, people are more attracted to their currency than to ours. Our currency is weaker. Strength day in energy, telco, utilities. Oh, and by the way, I flipped that. People are more attracted to our currency than to theirs. Weakness in consumer discretionary, healthcare, financials, and industrials. There's not... I can't really beat, you know, um, this market and say, oh, here's, you know, the absolute greatest story of the day. We're starting to get outside of earnings season, and um, there's some things that, that we should be worried about. SP 500 is down 6, the Dow is down 78, the NASDAQ down 18. Warren Buffet, one of the greatest investors of all time, said recently that he's worried about housing. He had an interview with Becky Quick, who I think he's fond of, or who maybe he's got a professional working relationship that's... Uh, exceptional. He said, housing's not that strong yet. I'm surprised at that, but it's better than it was a couple of years ago. The pickup in housing has been slower than I would have anticipated. And I would say that's true right to this date. And it's true in the secondary market for houses. The prices have recovered some and all of that. But if you look at transactions and pending transactions, it's not booming. 
pending homes are homes that are under contract but not yet closed. They were 8% lower in March. The real estate trade organization known as the National Association of Realtors, also known as NARRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRR
later in life, you'll manage it. Now, one of the things on retirement is how much do you need? Conventional wisdom says somewhere between 10 to 20 times your income. So if you're making 300000 you need $3 million to $6 million. Whoa. So you need to save 10, 15, 20% of your salary during your life, especially during the younger years, to make that happen. Now, maybe you need less. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Maybe you do. There's states that are good for retirement. There's states that are bad for retirement. And I'll throw out some names that are bad for retirement. Um, Maryland. The primary knock on Maryland that it's more expensive to live there than any other than many other states. Uh, retirees can expect to pay a buck twelve more national average for a movie ticket. Tax Foundation calculates Maryland residents pay 10.6% of their combined income in various state and local taxes. So they also have very low scores on health care, which is important to retirees, right? Um, Oklahoma's bad on the list. Now, Oklahoma's one of the ones that you would have thought would have been high on the list. Like, Oklahoma, they can't have exorbitant costs, can they? Oklahoma's crime rate is one of the highest in the nation, 3,800 violent and property crimes per 100,000 people. It also has one of the worst health care systems in the country. Um, patients at Oklahoma hospitals also gave their doctors and healthcare clinics below average satisfaction scores. I have some people that I know that live in Oklahoma, and instead of going to hospitals, they go to clinics kind of thing. I, I, I don't know the whole culture, so I'm not going to comment on it. Louisiana is one of the worst ones. States to live in. Crime is a problem in Louisiana. Um, very poor health care quality scores. The weather can be tough to endure. It's the second most humid state, humid, humidity uh, in the country. That's never good. Alabama. So far, the South not doing well on this list, huh? But they come in at number six. Let's see who the t- bottom five are after Alabama. Um, basic food is bad in Alabama. Basic health care, bad income, access to dentistry. Man, that is a knock on Alabama, huh? Hawaii, number five on the list. It's the high cost of living. Otherwise, it would probably be pretty good. The remoteness, the popular beaches, the wildlife, the culture. It's a top tourism destination. And because it's a top tourism destination... You get the tourist prices, and locals get it too. So, average loaf of bread in the United States, buck fifty in Honolulu, two eighty. Gas price is higher um, than the national average as well, obviously. Arkansas, again, the South not doing well, except for Hawaii popping up, and Maryland. Uh, this top ten list not so good. So, high crime rate again in Arkansas. Sixth lowest rating for wellness. Eighth lowest rating in the nation for health quality scores. Above average state and local taxes. Combined rate of about 10.3%. Alaska's no good. Uh, It's an industry state that's dominated by oil and gas. They ask very little of the taxpayers. The state and local tax burden is the second lowest in the country. So that's a bright spot for retirees. But they get really poor scores again in healthcare, 
and it's very, very expensive cost of living issues. Um, it's freezing basically from November to February, which isn't horrible. It's called winter. Um, but they also don't, it's a state that doesn't get a lot of sunshine, which I guess is important. West Virginia's on the list. Near, 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 near. Um, healthcare is considered the worst in the nation. Um, healthcare costs are also bad. So it's not a very preventative state on some diseases that are avoidable. The worst state to live in, according to um, a new study recently out, is New York. So New York, it's the high taxes. Big Apple is home to nearly half the state's residents. The city's high taxes and cost of living has pushed the entire state into the very bottom of the worst states for retirees. It takes a lot of infrastructure to cram 8.4 million people into New York's five boroughs. Residents help pay the extensive uh, pay for this extensive subway system, police force, park staff, and other services, with a tax rate that's second to none. 12.6%. Higher spending is the biggest driver. Besides that, you also have to deal with the highest, uh, fourth highest cost of living in the country. Um, when I started this list, I thought San Francisco might have been on it, right? Maybe, because we have very high income taxes. Uh, property taxes are that Prop 13, but they're still not cheap for a lot of people. And as we get, you know... The, People who bought their house in the 80s retiring. The people who bought their house in the 90s retiring. People, as we get into the later, it's going to be a state that can't afford old people. So my tax bill, you know, about $14,000 a year, $15,000 a year. It'll go up 2% from here. That's a lot of money to a retiree. So I'll be fine, but my neighbor won't. So... 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Uh, so, again, I try to focus the show completely on, you know, do the right thing. Save the right amount of money because Social Security is going to be eaten up by taxes mostly and by health care costs. And I want you to have money for rent or a mortgage or maybe it's paid for. I want you to have money for those property taxes because if you don't pay them, the state will take it from you. Um Getting wealth, part of it is getting rid of the wrong people in your life. Um, I've learned that, you know, time is, is limited. I've spent too much of my time on other people's ideas in different industries. I had a guy recently try to sell me a venture capital-themed idea, kind of like Shark Tank meets venture capital reality show. And when he was talking, he's like... First and foremost, he gave me his two numbers, an office number and his personal number. And when I called his office number, an old lady answered. It was his mother. And there just wasn't enough there to convince me that he had, you know, oh, I had this one partner who was, he was just sadistically mean. Like, I don't want to hear that. And that's, that's turn off. So he wanted to meet in person. I didn't because I knew I could potentially weed out a, a waste of my time on the phone. Anyhow, and anyway, a little southern music for you, taking a break. Apparently you don't want to retire in the south. Maybe Florida. Anyhow, anyway, I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. You can find me online at robblack.com.
Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. What's on your financial mind? One area that I see people make mistakes in is is choosing mutual funds or choosing exchange-traded funds or choosing stocks. It is a bit of a problem in the sense that that's an area where you actually have to have some skill. Let's talk about some ways to not mess it up. Exchange-traded funds are like mutual funds. I like exchange-traded funds typically more than mutual funds, but that's not across-the-screen thought. Mutual funds are a collection of stocks managed sometimes actively, or sometimes it's managed actively by a person, or sometimes it's managed as an index. So it just might own the 3,000 smallest companies, or the 2,000 smallest companies, or the 5,000 top companies in America as far as market weights go, or it might own the S&P 500. Indexes are cheaper than actively managed. Actively managed means you pay a little bit of money to the fund manager for his research and his skill set and his timing of the markets. Indexes, I think, are more appropriate for most people. And then they came out with an exchange-traded fund, which is kind of like an index fund. There are open-ended funds that can be bought and sold on a stock exchange. You could think of them as a hybrid version of both stocks and index funds. You buy them using a broker, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, just like you would purchase a stock, get 100 shares. If it's four bucks, you owe them $400, but you own them. This consists of a portfolio of securities that are designed to track different indexes. The first ETF was launched way back in 1993. Since then, they've become very popular. According to BlackRock, their December 2013 industry highlights the ETF industry has captured $2.4 trillion in assets. There's almost 5,000 different ETFs. Why are there so many, right? Used appropriately, ETFs can permit you to assemble a globally diversified portfolio that you can continue to buy on a regular basis. Hey, I just bought 100 shares of a $4 ETF. Next month, I'll buy 100 shares of a $4 ETF. But, oh, it went up in value, so I'm buying fewer shares. Or, oh, it went down in value, so I'm buying more shares. ETFs can be a trap for the unwary. And here's some potential tips to avoid. A high-cost ETF should be an oxymoron. Avoid high fees. A primary benefit of buying ETFs is that they track an index at a low cost, period. Just because an investment is designated an ETF doesn't mean it's low cost. There are a number of ETFs that have expense ratios in excess of 1%. Some of them, not many, have an expense ratio higher than 2%. So if you put a dollar in, you pay, you only get 98 cents of that stock or that ETF. 
And next year they're going to take two more two more pennies out of it because uh, they're taking their two percent. You want to avoid low liquidity ETFs. This is a a word that a lot of people don't feel comfortable discussing. How liquid will the stock be? Can you buy it? Can you sell it? The liquidity ETF is is affected by a lot of factors including trading volume of the securities that make up the ETF, the composition of the ETF, and the trading volume of the ETF itself. Exchange-traded funds that invest in large-cap stocks in developed economies or that track broad indices are the most liquid. For some fixed-income ETFs, which the underlying bonds or treasury bonds or corporate-grade bonds, they're more liquid than ETFs that hold riskier bonds. This is the big one, and this is the one that I have to throw out there because most people are attracted to the next big mistake that they make in exchange-traded funds. You want to avoid leveraged and inverse ETFs. And this is one that it's really, really, really tough to convince people of. There's ETFs that's, that give you two times the return to the S&P 500. 30% last year on the S&P 500, if you'd been in an e- S&P 500 ETF, would not have got you 60%. It sounds like it would, but it doesn't. These are products that were designed to be sold and not bought. A leveraged ETF seeks to amplify the returns of an underlying index using derivatives. A leveraged ETF that tracks NASDAQ 100 might have a 2 to 1 or a 3 to 1 ratio. It would be structured to return twice or three times returns of the underlying index. The underlying index, though, if it drops in value... In theory, you would lose two times or three times the losses. An inverse ETF is structured to benefit from a decline in the value of the underlying index. Depending on the structure of the inverse ETF, investors can earn double or triple the, the uh, percent of losses. So if you think the market's too high, maybe you'd buy a short S&P 500. And you would actually benefit when things go down. There's a lot of problems with leveraged and inverse ETFs. A lot of problems. The most obvious is that they're highly risky investments. Invested in these funds are pure speculation rather than responsible long-term investing. There's also concern on whether or not these funds perform as advertising. So far, a recent survey showed, according to the Journal of Index Investing, that over longer periods of time, more than one day, returns on these funds may not perform as advertised. The management fees charged by leveraged inverse ETFs are amongst the highest of those levied in the whole ETF universe. A leveraged commodity fund issued by Velocity Shares has an expense ratio of about 1.65%. So you're already starting at a negative. And you want to avoid the final one that I'll throw out there is trading ETFs. They trade on exchanges and you can easily buy and sell them just like stocks. The ability to trade is both a blessing and a curse. A wide variety of ETFs encourage bad investor behavior, like trying to select outperforming asset classes or engaging in in and out trading. I think these ETFs should be limited to funds that track broad stock and bond indexes. If you followed the advice that I just gave you on the above concepts of ETFs of mistakes to avoid, you'll do pretty well. You'll at least stop yourself from hurting yourself. Most investors hurt themselves. And then they blame the stock market because, quote-unquote, I lost money. And I hate to say it, it's you, not them.
The rules are pretty easy, but you have to be patient and play the game correctly. 800-516. Nope. We have a new phone number. I forgot. Our radio station recently moved, so you can't call the show yet, but soon. You can drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. Let's take a little bit of a break here soon, and we'll come back and we'll talk about um, some of the other things that you need to be looking at as far as an investor. Market stories, market insights, earnings, revenues, product. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Don't be shy. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. I appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you. Um, thanks for all the support. Little ways you can support me is to show up to my events from time to time. Um, sign up for my YouTube channel, Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, uh, Facebook group page, Cron4 Rob Black. It's just nice ways of staying in touch with you. Obviously, support the radio station you're listening to right here, right now, as much as you can, and as much as you see fit. Feedback to management, they always like it. It shows that real people are out there. You can find out more about my radio station at kdow.biz. While there, you can download the latest podcast of the show in the coming days. Because as we've moved our radio station, somehow we forgot to plug in something that was recording the show. Eh, it happens. Not something you can get all that terribly upset about, hopefully. Uh, A couple things that, you know, I think continue to pop up. You know, stories like Home Depot closing 400 stores. Shares are rising. A lot of people wish JCPenney would say the same thing. Um, struggling retailers. Twitter tumbling today as lockup period expires. Again, teaching us that lesson. Even though you're a great company, even though you're a sexy IPO, the momentum people that love you will leave you. Any stock that runs up 100% can easily pull back 40 to 60%. Any company that runs up, you know, well, I, I'll be careful of what I say, but I'll, I'll stick with the first statement. Used car sales are on the upswing. Is this bad news for new car sales? It's actually not. Used car business is picking up steam right now. Car sales rose 3.6% last month. They're picking up in large part because the dealers have more cars on their lot to sell. Used car market usually goes hand-in-hand hand with the new car market. When buyers are busy with new cars, the used car market flourishes because all the motors are trading in their jalopies. What else out there to think about? Um, Kentucky Derby pulled in 15.3 million viewers, the 140th running. It saw a three-year-old chestnut California chrome capture the crown 
California Chrome just seemed to be holding back, holding back, holding back, holding back. The owners of California Chrome could have sold the horse for – it wasn't an expensive horse when they bought it. It was a cheap horse. They could have sold it for a pretty penny the day before the Derby. The day after the Derby, they could sell it for two pretty pennies. TV audience was down nearly 6% compared with last year. When Who won last year? Orb? I don't know if you remember last year. It was raining. So this is a very strong showing. Fourth time in six years that NBC coverage has topped 15 million eyeballs. Um, Coke Pepsi dropping the controversial BVO from all their drinks. Uh, Mountain Dew Fanta Powerade. You may not know this, but there was a uh, flame retardant in it. A Mississippi teenager who went to a website, change.org, and started getting petitions for Coca-Cola and Pepsi to you know, pull this ridiculous ingredient. It's not approved in Japan or Europe. I give it credit. That's one of the powers of the Internet. Now, here's one of the evils of the Internet. Monica Lewinsky's back. Now, what's interesting is she, she says she got motivated. She's coming out with a, a book that really kind of goes into a little bit more detail. Um, she kept a low profile of the last decade. She says it's time to burn the beret. It's time to bury the dress. Um, she's going to have a no. She doesn't have a book. She's coming out with an interview with Vanity Fair, which that's pretty interesting. It's not a book, but you can see that it's going to sell magazines. She goes, "Let me say it again. I, I, myself, deeply regret what happened." Uh, she's going public. She said she got sad over the tragic story of the 18-year-old Rutgers student Tyler Clementi, who killed himself in 2010 after his roommate filmed him, without his knowledge, kissing another man. She said that scandal, or that event, took her back to her own scandal when her mother thought she was going to commit suicide. Um, she said the Drudge Report basically made me the first person where there was global humiliation being driven by the Internet. The Republicans love this because it's a reminder that you know Hillary Clinton is probably running for president next uh, two years from now. And it gives... Uh, people like Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, an opportunity to talk about the predatory behavior of the Clintons, which eh, apparently, I'm not going to talk about that. Anyhow, let's take a quick look at the market, see if anything's jumping up and down. Yen strength is weighing on sentiment. Financials lag for a second day, strength in energy, telcos, and utilities. Weakness in consumer discretionary healthcare, financial, industrials. Um, I don't think there's that many stories out there today. You know, Disney's getting ready to come out with earnings, and I think that's going to be one that I watch, because that stock has done no wrong. Um, under the tenure of their CEO, their previous CEO, Michael Eisner, there were some problems. The new CEO, yeah, he he was part of, you know, the... John Martin or John Carter Mars film, you know, he's tied. That's on his, his resume. It's you know part of the Lone Ranger. But that's one of the reasons we're going to see more and more can't miss movies like The Avengers. Uh, since 2010, the stock's gone from $21 a share to where it is today, 81.39, almost at its all-time high. Pretty close, just a couple days off of its all-time high. The question is, the house mouse built, will it be in business 10, 15, 20 years from now? And I think we could basically safely say they, they own enough intellectual property that we'll want to take our children to see Toy Story because it meant so much to us as kids. Or we'll want to show them how like crazy 
animations become from showing them the old Cinderella to where things are today. I heard yesterday, I think Seth Rogen talked about, he's making a an R-rated Disney, no, 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 an R-rated animated movie that looks like a Pixar film. Um, and that's funny, you know. R-rated comedies uh, have been kind of the rage recently because they've done so well. PG-13 just not gross enough for America. Got to push it to the R rating. Anyhow, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to listen to the CFP Chad Burton New Focus on Wealth Day from 1 to 2. I'm Rob Black. I'll be back tomorrow, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Thanks for listening. Take care. Good day. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.